So not only was I learning how to use the tools and learning how to understand how a building is built and finished, I was learning how the materials work and how to use those materials in a way that would have suited his artistic vision. And over the two years I spent working on that house and the studio and finishing them, I realized I loved the work. It never occurred to me to understand how scuts or how a building is put together and which is the load-bearing wall and why that matters and all those kinds of things, which wood is better for trim and which is better for structure and how to bend steel to line an arch door opening and that kind of thing. I, I never, I never thought I'd need to know that or would love it once I did. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with influencers from all over the world who are contributing to the common good in all kinds of interesting ways. Contributing to the common good in even the smallest of ways is one of the scientifically proven ways we can age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will inspire you to live with zest. And to find out more about my podcast, my web courses, and my book, Not Just Chatting, How to Become a Master Podcast Interviewer, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at upcoming episodes and other fun and quirky tidbits. Uh, and if you love the podcast, I'd be grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker. Find out more at judybanker.com. And our technical director is Stephen Litweiler. Boy, am I excited for today's conversation. It's uh, It's been a long time coming, and I am really excited to talk to our guest today. And if there was an award for zestful aging, today's guest would win it hands down. She's an award-winning writer and a botanist on a mission, in her words, to restore our home planet and help us be our best and kindest selves. Two of my favorite things, plants and self-compassion. She volunteers at Yellowstone, removing invasive plant species by hand so the native plants can thrive and feed the animals that call the park home. Her award-winning books are personal and tender stories about her own challenges, including the loss of her beloved husband 10 years ago to brain cancer and her own chronic disease. And I am so honored to introduce Susan Twight. Hello, Susan. Hello, Nicole, Christina. I'm so happy to be here. What a joy it is to get to talk with you. It is. We've been exchanging pictures and a recipe and all kinds of our our common our common loves of birds, uh, landscape, plants, and all things um, earth-like and otherwise. I am so glad to have you on. You know, it's it it's interesting. We were thinking together about where to begin and what really fits into this idea of. Uh, zestful aging is, you know, how we recreate ourselves, our resilience, because life does have a way of 
being pretty brutal at times. And, you know, I'm so interested to hear what has changed for you since you've been widowed uh, 10 years ago now. Where are you and what, what are the surprises? What are you discovering about yourself? Well, really, I, I want to go back to that widowed thing. Um, I think of my life as B.C. and A.D., um, which is not at all Christian. It's before cancer and after death. Before Richard got brain cancer, we were the pair who everybody pointed to and said, I want a relationship like yours. We did everything together. We walked hand in hand through the streets of our small town. We hiked, we biked, we traveled together, we worked. Um, sometimes our work even, we even collaborated. He was a sculptor late in life and um, I'm a writer and we did a couple of artistic collaborations together. So we had what a lot of people thought of was an idyllic life. And I, like so many of us, always assumed it would continue forever or at least until my chronic illness took me off the face of the earth. And that was fine with me. I was good with that. It never occurred to me he would get brain cancer and die. It just it, nev mm. I mean, it never mm. occurred to me he would be gone before I would. And one thing you talk about in the book, and you have photos also, is the life that is in this man's face, his eyes, his <laughs> just his presence is so alive. He was a larger than life presence. Um, and his smile, as people said, would just light up a room. Um, Richard was, um, he was first an economist, but his heart was in his sculpture. And when when I bullied him, and I did, into, <laughs> into retiring from economics um, and pursuing sculpture, it's just like he lit up even brighter. And um, five years later, he was dead. So my life in that BCAD thing, and that was two and a quarter years of um, journeying with brain cancer with him, hoping he would survive and be the exception, and he wasn't. And also taking care of my mother through her death, giving both of them the death they hoped for at home. Um, my life completely, I would never, never, never have imagined going down that path. I would never imagined I would have strong enough to do that. And I would never have imagined making the path I have now. And part of that came from necessity, and you asked about surprises. The biggest surprise is realizing that I have a side gig of, um, I call it restoring houses. Since Richard died, I've um, brought new life to, this will be the eighth, the one I'm working now, on now oh eight gosh. different houses, condos, um, and the like. I, I, I started out out of economic necessity when Richard died. He had always dreamed of building a house for us with his very own hands, and he did. But being a sculptor, he got bored before he got to the details of finishing it, like the baseboards and the interior doors and putting doors and drawers on the beautiful, beautiful cabinets he made in the kitchens and the bathrooms, um, even edging the custom counters and the sinks mm. in the bathrooms, which were carved out of boulders that he found on our land. I mean, it was just a gorgeous house, but it was missing some of the stuff that if you had to sell it, say, after you were widowed and had a lot of medical debt to pay off, you couldn't do that because there was no trim on the windows. They were tacked in place 
custom windows tacked in place with warped two by fours. Um, the master bathroom had a toilet in one corner and a sink scavenged out of a basement in the other corner and the shower bath area was not even finished. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the house needed a lot of work and I had never picked up a tool in my life besides a screwdriver. Next to the house was Richard's 1,632 square foot historic studio, which was also not finished, full of thousands of tools that I had never used. Some mm. like a giant table saw as big as the office I am now writing in, which is small, but not that small. Um, I'd never used any of them. I wasn't allowed to, they were his tools. Um, and I had, my only asset was a house and the land and the studio. That was where all my money lived. I owned it outright. And I owed enough money that I was going to lose it um, to his medical journey. I owed enough money that I was going to lose it if, if because I didn't. Because you, you couldn't work as a freelance writer and also. My, yeah. My freelance career over taking care of Richard and my mom over those two and a quarter years, my freelance career as a writer was trashed. And you and, you were driving Richard to his <laughs> treatments, which were far, far away. Two and a half hours away over two mountain passes over 10,000 feet, summer and winter. And my parents were in Denver where the, his treatments were. Um, we were in a little town in the literally in the middle of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Beautiful, beautiful place, but not easy to access the treatment he needed from there. So um, I was, I literally said to myself, well, I would make a horrible greeter at Walmart but I could get a job there, but I'd last about half an hour because I'd be the one standing at the door saying, you really don't want all this plastic stuff anyway. Shop somewhere else. This is going to yeah. end up in a landfill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would not be the person to be the Walmart greeter. No. Um, so I literally looked at myself and said, well, you have an asset and you better figure out how to finish it and sell it if you want to survive or you'll be living in your Subaru, which didn't appeal at 55. So dear friends helped me learn how to do everything from hang a door um, in an open door opening that needed a door, you start on the hinge side for a tip, um, to, you know, how to use a pneumatic nailer, um, how to mill the lumber for trim for the windows, 34 window and door openings, mm. um, how to do baseboard, which of course I didn't just buy baseboard at the lumber company. I found a plywood that I loved and then I had that ripped into smaller strips and then I had to cove the edges myself and blah, blah, blah. I wanted to finish the house in a way that that respected Richard's artistic vision. And so it couldn't just be stock stuff off the shelf. Mm -hmm. So not only was I learning how to use the tools and learning how to understand how a building is built and finished, I was learning how the materials work and how to use those materials in a way that would have suited his artistic vision. And over the two years I spent working on that house and the studio and finishing them with the help of friends, um, bless them all. Um, <laughs> I realized I loved the work. It never occurred to me to understand how scuts or how a building is put together and which is the load bearing wall and why that matters and all those kinds of things, which wood is better for trim and which is better for structure and how to bend steel to line an arch door opening and that kind of thing. I, I never, I never thought I'd need to know that or would love it once I did. Mm -hmm. Well, I did. And after I sold the house, um, there was a little piece of property that I subdivided off of the bigger property with the house and the studio on it. And I, it was just big enough by six square feet for the city of Salida, Colorado to allow me to build a small house 
on that property and fitting it in was a challenge. And by small, I mean 730 square feet mm-hmm. plus a garage with a little workshop attached and a 400 square foot guest apartment on top of the garage. So I designed those on the back of a, literally a back of a piece of a book. I was already writing a, a scrap paper from one, one draft of the narrative. And I took them to a friend who was a um, house designer and part of a, a design build construction group. And I said, Tom, can you make this into a drawing for me? And would you guys build it? Um, and he said, are you going to butt out while we build it? And I said, no. <laughs> and he rolled his eyes and he said, fine, we'll figure it out. And so he and I designed it together and, um, built myself a little house. Oh, I oversaw the building of this little house and it's, it's studio. And I had so much fun with that. And the property values in the little town where I lived were soaring so much. My inner real estate investor said, you know, you might cash out and think about going home to Wyoming. My dad was getting older. Um, and you might find a house there you'd want to rehab. I did. Mm-hmm. And eight projects later, <laughs> In 10 years, I have done um, one to built one house entirely um, and refinished, finished one to completely remodeled from basement to roof. Wow. Um, two others um, just generally remodeled, you know, replacing doors and windows and stuff. Uh, three others, four others. And then I'm now on um, number eight. Mm. And I never... BC, I would never have thought of myself as able to even do the smallest things like put the toilet paper holder and towel bars in a bathroom. It would never have occurred to me I could do that. Because I had a spouse who not only could do that, but he could make them if he didn't like the ones you could buy. Mm -hmm. And if he needed to make a tool to make them better, he could (laughs) do that too. So it never would have occurred to me. And now... My family said, if I do another renovation project, they're going to stage an intervention. (laughs) (laughs) But I've just... Wow, but it's something that you have discovered. I mean, we... You're a scientist, right? So yes. it sounds like <clears throat> innately you love understanding how things fit together and I do. cause and effect and all of I, this. I love to know how things work. I love to know mm-hmm. what's related to what. In science, I'm a botanist and my my field of study is who loves who, who hates who, who lives with who, who poisons who, um, who eats who, and why that all matters to us as humans. So I'm all about the relationships and understanding the way a building is built is no different. It's, a, it's a understanding how the materials work together and how we as people use the spaces we create. Mm-hmm. So, and understanding how you can use tools and, and materials to make spaces like that or heal the spaces that someone has neglected badly so they're falling apart. And um, that's been something that, I mean, you started out rehabbing some pretty shabby uh (laughs) i mean you talk about in the book like these were unloved they were you know there was junk garbage you were pulling out all kinds of space junk right and planting native (laughs) native grasses i not only restore houses i say um i also do the landscape so yeah, for me, it's a it's a healing thing when someone doesn't love a space. I'd rather not see a house um, scraped and replaced. I would rather, 
reuse those materials, reuse the space, honor the design and bring it back to health again so that that house and that land has another 50 or 100 years to be used rather than, you know, it's hard on the planet when we start all over again and use new materials and Mm -hmm. use energy with those new materials and create new paint and manufacture new stuff. I would rather reuse and part of that reusing, part of the restoring I do is respecting what's still able to be reused in a house um, and bringing it back to life again without adding necessarily lots of new stuff. And I'm laughing because I'm where I'm sitting in my office in my little 672 square foot cottage in Western Colorado. Um, This is a house that was built for a family of six. Ah. It was built for the um, the orchard manager of the apple orchard that is where my um, neighborhood is now in 1938. And they started with the front part of the house, half of that 672 square feet, two rooms into which moved the orchard manager, his spouse, and their four children in 1938. Mm -hmm. And then at some point in the next couple of years, they built the back part of the house, adding two bedrooms and a bathroom to those front two rooms. And it's a beautiful little space, which six people lived in. I, of course, can't imagine sharing it with five other people, but I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, Over the years since 1938, it had slid off of part of its foundation and I had to jack one side of it up last fall before we moved in and put a new foundation under that. And now the back of it, which never had a foundation, you can sit in my office and put a marble at the uphill side of my office floor and it will all by itself roll to the downhill side, the part that the the load bearing wall that's sitting on the ground. And so sometime this year, my guys and I will jack up the back of the house and put a foundation under that. So the floors are mostly level. You know, in a, house, in a house this age, they're never going to be all level, mm. but that's okay. Hi, everyone. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. But there's a community here, and you talk about that in in your 
book and and mm-hmm. your books how yeah you have a vision you definitely have a clear focus on but you have helpers oh yeah i could you know i'm 65 i i have lived with lupus my whole life it's an autoimmune disease that um it, 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 if you don't if you don't manage it well, um, you it eventually kills you um, because the stress in your body um, stiffens the membranes around your internal organs and they um, are injured and stop working. So like your you know kidneys and your lungs and your heart and that kind of thing. And I have learned to manage it well um, without medication because I'm allergic to all medications basically. Um, but I have to be aware. It makes me super aware of what my body physically can do and what my body physically can't. So I have learned how to work with people in the trades. And mostly I'm the small, slender, wrinkled female um, working with a bunch of big, herky guys. And they love it because I'm the one going, well, okay, but my understanding of that was this. Could we do it this way or is, is that crazy? And they'll look at me and scratch their heads and, and go, well, you know, maybe you have a point. I think I would do it like that, though, not exactly mm. like that. And I learned something and they learned something. And they know I respect them. I'm not saying we have to do it this way. I'm mm-hmm. saying, well, what if we thought, have, was this crazy? I mean, have you thought about maybe doing it that way? And they'll be like, hmm, I hadn't, but I think I would modify it slightly like this. And they know I respect them and I know they respect me because I respect them. Mm-hmm. And it's just been so fun. I never have worked like that before. You know, writers were solitary. And so mm-hmm. I love the creative aspect of working with this community of skilled tradespeople that I work with, whether I'm talking to my tile guy about doing the kitchen backsplash. Um, when I bought this house, the first thing I noticed walking in the front door, you walk into an, into the two front rooms, which are now open, kitchen and living room. And the first thing I noticed is I looked at the, at the backsplash behind the stove and realized it's stick-on vinyl tile. Oh, how! Ooh, and I went... That's only cosmetic, but I'm doing something about that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it turns out that in my town in western Colorado, there is a tile company that uses the clay dug out of the (gasps) irrigation reservoirs that get sedimented up. They dig that clay out, which has to be done anyway, because otherwise the irrigation reservoirs fill up with sediment and can't hold as much water. And they make tile out of it. And they're now working at getting permits from the feds and the state to siphon the methane off the abandoned coal mines in the county and use that to fire their furnaces for making the tile. So they would be a zero waste tile company. Oh, In terms of climate change Mm. and global warming, this is such a cool thing. I'm not only buying a tile that's local made in my area, Yes, But I would also be able to be buying a tile from a company that is using methane, one of the most destructive climate gases, um, Mm -hmm. to fire their furnaces instead of electricity. So I I just, I find little things like that in my work in in restoring houses. And I'm like, wow. And my tile guy, I'm talking to him and he's like, I didn't even know about these tile folks. (laughs) This is really cool. I have another job over here. I'm going to check with with Delta Tile and see if they have tile that I can use for this bathroom I'm doing in this mega house that these wealthy people are building. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, he's been tiling forever. Um, and it's just cool to be able to introduce him to a material that's right in his backyard that he didn't know about. And if he'd thought about it, and I don't know if 
climate change is on his list. But this is a man who came here when he was 16 from Mexico because his family could no longer farm their land there. Um, he's a legal immigrant and he's been here 30 years. He still goes home to see his family. He probably supports them. Um, and suddenly I'm bringing home to him something about the global climate, you know, the global supply change and climate change that he never thought about. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It just I reminds me, connection. it reminds me of your work as a botanist too, understanding what plant is speaking with what plant, who's communicating with whom, as you said before, which ones cooperate, which ones don't. I mean, you are so much about this organic networking. It's. It sounds like there's a part of it certainly that's practical, but I hear the love yeah. And the it, there's something about it that is 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 just about quality of life, not just how can I get, you know, some some really cool tile that's local and, you know, I'm yeah. doing good for the environment. I mean, there's this whole it sounds to me like there's this spiritual piece of how you interact with the world, how you renovate houses, and how you are in relationships, certainly that comes through in Bless the Birds. And that, that's, you know, that's a really great observation. And one, I guess that brings us full circle back to your original question about what were the surprises um, I learned in this path that I never expected to have, didn't ask for, honestly. If you'd asked me before Richard got, was diagnosed with glioblastoma, if I wanted to be on my own and learn how to renovate houses, I would have said, not just no, but I would have added an adjective that we're not going to say on this podcast. <laughs> um, yes. And it would have been emphatic and I would have believed in it. But the other thing that that becoming a widow and having to make my own path and remake myself and discover parts of myself I didn't know existed is I learned what the subtitle of this memoir, Bless the Birds, that you just mentioned, I learned what the subtitle is about in a larger sense. The subtitle is, learn, is living with love in a time of dying. And I think of that as not just about the brain cancer journey Richard and I took, and I took my mom's journey through her death too. It's about learning to be our best selves and live with love in the hardest times. And for me, climate change is one of the hardest times. I never imagined I'd be passing a world onto my stepdaughter, Molly, that's in worse shape than when I found it. I never imagined that our country would be such a bitter and divisive place. Mm. Um, these are really hard times in a lot of ways. And for our generation, you know, we were going to, we were going to revolutionize things. We were the free love generation. We were the find your own work. We were the, you know, make change in our lives generation. And it seems like things are worse than when we were in our twenties. Um, mm -hmm. And so the thing I've learned is that spiritual thing that the one thing I can do to leave this world in better shape than I found it, and I learned this by living through Richard's death, is live with love when times are hardest. And I apply that to everything that I can. I'm not perfect. I was a redhead before I went silver, <laughs> and I have a redhead's temper still, but I have learned to step back Carrie Newcomer, the singer Carrie Newcomer, has a lyric in one of her songs where she says, every time I stop to pick up stones, I put them back or something like that. She says it better and turn away. Every time I stop to pick up stones as if to throw stones at someone, every uh. time I'm that angry, 
I put them back and turn away. Mm-hmm. I really have applied that to my life. I want, if I do nothing else in whatever years I have left, I want to live with love as much as possible. And whether that's loving this old house that I thought that no one else loved, um, whether it's loving my tile guy and appreciating his journey to where he is now and his handiwork, whether it's looking for the tile that <clears throat> is local and, and is going to cost me more, but it could be part of the climate change solution. Mm. Um, it, it, whether it's eradicating invasive weeds in Yellowstone, whether it's, I just wrote a handwritten card to a fan who wrote me a handwritten card. I spent half an hour handwriting her a card, thanking her for what she wrote to me after she read Bless the Birds. That to me is taking the time to live with love in a really difficult time of our lives. And that to me is the only way I can change the world. The quality of connection. Mm -hmm. To every piece of life. Talk about Yellowstone, if you would. I, I love that story. <laughs> um, I volunteer as a weed warrior, my boss calls us, in Yellowstone National Park in the summers. Um, I spend time on my hands and knees digging up invasive weeds. And when I say invasive weeds, I don't mean the um, plant that you know it isn't one you want in your garden. I mean the plants that come from another place and don't play well with the communities they find. So for instance, the bullies, um, the bullies of the plant world. Yeah. Um, to preface that, you have to say that plants are what make this earth habitable for all of us. Literally, we humans would not exist without Earth's green and photosynthesizing plants. We have a reciprocal relationship tied to every breath we take. Plants inhale the carbon dioxide that we exhale. They exhale the oxygen that we require for life that we inhale. Without Earth's plants, there would be not enough oxygen in the atmosphere. The percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere would be too low for us to survive, we and all the other oxygen breathers. So we are tied to Earth's plants by our breath, every single breath. Mm. Without them, we would not be here. We also eat plants. We build with plants. We wear plants. Um, plants form some of our fuels. I mean, they're just, they're so interwoven with what it means to be human. And even the medication, the digitalis. Medication, yeah. plants, plants supply all sorts of, aspirin. Aspirin mm. comes from willow bark. Penicillin which revolutionized medicines, made it so we could survive the diseases that had killed us by the scores before penicillin was discovered, comes from not a plant, but a fungus, a similar, in the scheme of how we classify organisms, fungi are closer to plants than they are, in some cases, to animals. Um, but we get so much of what we need for life and so much of what makes us human. I'm a writer. I write on paper. Paper comes from plants. Mm. Books are made of plants. A lot of inks come from plants. We literally, we communicate using materials that come from plants. Our cells are made of plants. The proteins that make up humans, we cycle those proteins through our bodies, they wear out. 
um, and, and our cells have to be replaced with new protein-made cells, new cells made from minerals and proteins and amino acids and that kind of thing on a weekly, monthly, or yearly basis. The cells in your bones last longest. The cells in your gut, in some cases, last a couple of weeks. You need plants to make those new cells. You are made, we are made of plants. Mm. And they, uh, plants are not just this kind of green backdrop. There's millions of kinds of them and they form associations, they form communities and they're what make our landscapes green and healthy. And when we import plants from elsewhere, from other plant communities where they may be wonderful citizens of those communities, they don't have the relationships to the place in the place we import them to, to be healthy citizens of their new communities. They might form them over thousands and thousands of years, mm -hmm. but in the meantime, they can be horribly destructive. Mm -hmm. They may kill other plants that are crucially important to the animals that live there or to we humans. And those are what I would call invasive weeds. They're really the bullies of the world. And so I spend time in the summer and I'm laughing at myself on my hands and knees hand weeding invasive weeds in parts of Yellowstone where we can't use chemicals, we can't use big mechanical tools, um, particularly sensitive parts like the campground at Mammoth Hot Springs in the nor northern part of Yellowstone is where a herd of about 45 elk, female elk calve every spring. They mm -hmm. have their calves in the campground. They raise mm -hmm. their calves there at a certain time of year. You can sit outside your RV or your tent or whatever you're camping in, in in the Mammoth Campground and hear the cows, the elk females are called cows, calling to their calves who are scattered all through the campground. And the moms are going, <laughs> where are you? Get over here now. And the cows are like, It's like this chorus of moms and calves all through there. Oh well, my goodness. Because that area gets used hard as a campground, there's bare areas where invasive weeds have taken hold. We can't spray those areas because we got baby elk there. Mm. So we hand weed. And I'm one of the people who does that. With a trowel. Um, it's actually a Japanese plant knife. It's oh, got a seven. It's oh. got a seven-inch blade that's serrated on one side. Oh. So I've actually been working and had someone come by, and there I am in my little volunteer uniform and my bill cap on that says Park Service Volunteer. And someone will go by and go, "I thought it was illegal to dig plants in the national park." And I stand up, and if I forget, I whip my, you know, I have my plant knife in my hand upright, and they're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa!" I'm like, "Oh, sorry, that's just my plant knife. I'm using it to dig these invasive weeds." And I give my little talk about why I'm doing what I'm doing, and they're like, "Oh, okay, cool." <laughs> but oh, it's actually yeah, kind of a this, fearsome the weapon. Real deal. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a fearsome weapon if you're not paying attention. <laughs> like you know, holding it up in my hand, I'm like, oh no, no, wasn't threatening you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just my plan. <laughs> it sounds to me like, in many, many ways, at 65, as a widow, even with a chronic disease, you are living a life that is beyond rich. It is. I am super, super fortunate, and I'm aware of that every day. You know, I, I spend time being grateful every day. Um, I'm a person of routine and ritual, and I get up every morning and do yoga because it's what helps my body remember how to move and how to be healthy. And then I do a, um, I do a standing prayer in tree pose at the end of yoga that, mm -hmm. that is an intention for how I'll live my day, and it's also a gratitude for having another day to live. So I'm super, super aware of that, which doesn't mean I don't screw up 
and mess things up and have bad days and all that kind of stuff. But it does mean that more often than not, I'm living in a state of just joy of being alive. Um, and I, I feel really fortunate to be able to be there, honestly. Um, it, it took being told I wouldn't survive when I was first diagnosed with lupus. I was in my 20s. I was in grad school and I was told I'd live three to five years. And so I did what you do when you're told in your 20s you're going to live three to five years. I did everything I could do to endanger my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I kayaked in rivers way beyond my skill. I, I'm sorry to say this, but I slept with guys I barely knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I just, I was wild mm-hmm. for two or so years. And then when I didn't die, I decided that, well, maybe this living thing was something I ought to master. <laughs> <laughs> Because if I wasn't, you know, if I wasn't going to die right off, I might as well learn how to actually live. And that has occupied the rest of my life. You know, it's a lifelong thing. Um, I figure when we know what we need to know, that's when we check out. That's the end of life. It's, it sounds like the lupus has really informed Mm -hmm. your spirituality. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, it's quite fair. Um, That's a really good way to say it. Uh, I think, I think of it as my greatest teacher. Um, Mm. it's also, I am my longest running experiment because part of how I manage it is just to simply be aware of where my health is, where my emotions are, where my stress levels are, what I'm doing, what I'm eating, all that kind of thing. And look for patterns in that data. Have I, did I get a fever last night? And that's one of the things that lupus does for me if I'm not managing it well is I'll wake up just drenched in sweat and this is no hot flash. This is like, um, hallucinating, Mm. um, things are bad. Um, and as soon as I can calm myself down, um, I then stop and go, all right, did you overdo it yesterday? What's going on here? Why is this happening? I look for patterns in my observed data of my life, um, which is what I do as a scientist. Mm-hmm. But so, so in that sense, I am my longest running experiment because I've been looking for those patterns, making conclusions about them, adjusting my life, whether adjusting my work or my stress levels or my diet or my exercise level or in the case early in my life when I was first diagnosed, um, divorcing my first husband, um, because we were bad for each other, literally. I have adjusted my life so that the condition of lupus and I can get along. And that has has given me deep spiritual insight into who I am. And sometimes what an asshole I am, excuse me. You know, I mean, I sometimes just shake my head at myself and go, really, you brought that on yourself. That was really yeah. super smart. You know, hello. <laughs> I'm, good, I'm good at being sarcastic at myself. <laughs> um, because it was so much of what we, that what makes us suffer, and this I think is a Buddhist viewpoint, um, so much of what makes us suffer in life is self-imposed. And, mm. and we don't want to look the at it. We don't want to see it. Yes. That's the, the second, second arrow. arrow. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm as bad as anybody else about that. You know, I'm not perfect by any means. Um, but I have learned to notice after the fact often, and to sort out what it is and, and to, to do my best to, un, un, you know, pull the arrow out and not shoot it at myself again. <laughs> at least not from the same angle or at the same part, you know? <laughs> yes. So, mm-hmm. is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with in terms of winding up at a very different place that you thought you'd be um, at sixty-five, and and how to embrace that, even though 
some parts you would not have chosen at all. I would not have chosen at mm. all. Um, I, I think I want to say what I said in Bless the Birds, um, but I'm going to paraphrase myself. In Bless the Birds, I said that this isn't a sad story. It's a love story. And that has been true about my whole life. I've had some seriously wrenching things to deal with. And I have chosen to find the love story, whether it's love of another person, love of myself, which took me a very long time to learn, mm -hmm. um, or just love of this existence, being able to wake up, as Richard used to say, well, as long as I don't wake up dead, I'm good. Um, <laughs> his oncologist heard him say that, and she said, she looked at him and she said, Richard, if you wake up dead, you're not waking up. And he said, mm, yes, good point. <laughs> um, but I think we can, we can, and I think the lesson in life is to find a way to wake up loving what we have. And that doesn't mean accepting what's wrong. It doesn't mean loving racism or loving environmental destruction or loving classism or um, loving having your history erased. Um, or being told you're less of a person. It doesn't mean loving any of those things. It means loving what we have to work with in our lives. And I would hope that when I go on to whatever's next after this existence, that people look at me and say she did her best to love life and to heal this earth and we who share the planet. Because that's my mission in life. Mm-hmm. Where can people find out more about you, Susan, and your work? The easiest way is to go to my website, mm -hmm. which reminds me that I need to update it. Um, and that is just my full name. It's Susan, S-U-S-A-N, middle initial J as in Juan or John, Twight, T as in Tom or Tomas, W-E-I-T, Dot com. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, you can look for me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter every morning with a haiku and a photo mm -hmm. that I write and take myself. It's my gift of beauty and love to the social media world every morning. And my reminder that mm, there's a real world outside your window, away from your computer screen or your phone screen, mm -hmm. <laughs> that you might want to pay attention to because there's beauty everywhere. Um as Mary Oliver says, the world offers us, it offers itself up to our imaginations every day. Mm -hmm. And my daily haiku and, and photos are a reminder to open yourself to that. Um, and your blog on your website. My blog on my website, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And my books, of which I have written 13, which seems amazing. Um, Bless the Birds is the 13th, and I'm hoping that's a lucky number. Mm -hmm. Um you can find them on my website. You can also just, um, if you just Google my name or Chrome or whatever other browser you want to use, whatever, you know, um, what do we call those things? The web search things, mm -hmm. um, Bing or whatever you want to do for my name, just Google <laughs> me. You'll find me because mm. as, as with any author, we are online. Um, my books can be found in any bookstore, um, bookshop dot um, com online or Amazon or whatever your choices or your local your wonderful local mm -hmm. independent bookstore mm -hmm. who we love or your Amen library on that, that. Yeah. yeah yeah oh my goodness Susan thank you so much 
I've been looking forward to talking to you for for a long while and I know you've been you had some weather issues, renovation issues, you know, really practical everyday life issues. <laughs> Lack of internet access issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of that. And, all that stuff, um, yeah. yeah. Well, what a joy it is to talk with you. Thank you for this podcast, and thank you for the work you do in your life. Um, you're one of those people who inspire me. So thank you for being you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.